I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. I have two incredibly inspiring guests for you today, Sheikh Abudur Al-Qasimi and Mamadou Toure. They are the founders of the Ubuntu Love Challenge, a global movement that is built on the core philosophy of Ubuntu. I am because we are, with a mission to restore hope through a worldwide display of human collaboration and appreciation. Sheikh Abudur Al-Qasimi is the daughter of His Highness, the leader of the Emirate of Sharjah, Sheikh Sultan bin Muhammad Al-Qasimi. She's the founder and CEO of the children's publisher, Kalimat Group, and she's the vice president of the International Publishers Association. She is a trailblazer in the global publishing scene and is creating a positive impact on the world through freedom to publish, enlightenment of children, and empowerment of women. She has been ranked by Forbes as one of the most powerful Arab women in business, and she established Publish Her in 2019, an informal networking body that seeks to increase the number of women in leadership roles within the publishing industry worldwide. Mamadou Touré is the founder of Africa 2.0, a non-for-profit pan-African civil society organization that we've all grown to love. Africa 2.0 aims to create a sustainable vision for the transformation of Africa. Mamadou has been named one of the top 10 most influential men in Africa by Forbes magazine. He founded the Ubuntu Group in 2015 and built on his global network and investment savviness, he launched socioeconomics projects throughout the continent of Africa that truly made a difference. Inspired by the wisdom of his ancestors, Mamadou believes that co-creating a better world is possible when diversity is fully nurtured and access to opportunity is evenly distributed. His recent venture, Ubuntu Tribe, is a platform that promotes shared economy through the digitization of gold and other mineral resources as a means for financial inclusion and wealth redistribution. I am so honored to have such inspiring guests with me today. Hello. Hello, hello Sheikh Abudur. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I'm very good, alhamdulillah. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Hey, Mo. Hey, Sheikh Abudur. How are you? Good. Yeah, Mamadou. Hi. How are you? Very good. Very good. Sheikh Abudur, I want to introduce you to my audience. And there are so many ways I can. I mean, I can talk about you being royalty. I can talk about you being such a successful, really, really role model as a businesswoman, as a publisher. But I actually don't want to talk about all of those. I want to talk about you 
being a woman and a mother, because I find that this motivates a lot of what you do in life is, is your care for equality and empowering women and for children. So would you tell us a bit about what drove you to become so active in the scene of publishing for children and activism for women's participation? Sure, absolutely. First of all, thank you, Mo, for having me on this podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. And I, yes, I always love to define myself as a mother because actually when I became a mother, I changed. I changed internally. I don't know what happens when you become a mother, but definitely something changes in you. And I became a different person. I saw the world differently. I reacted differently. I communicated differently. I thought differently. Everything changed. My perspective in life changed. And I'm very grateful for my children for giving me that gift. I have four children now, and I'm very grateful to have had these experiences because they've opened my eyes to new possibilities. And to link this to publishing, it's really the reason why I set up my publishing house, which is Kelimat Group. It is because my daughter at the time, who was four years old, really hated all the Arabic books that I was buying her. And, uh, you know, I would buy both Arabic and English and I would read them to her and she could see the difference in the two. And she expressed, you know, that her frustration that the Arabic books lacked imagination, creativity, uh, the illustrations were boring. And I really couldn't argue with this four-year-old. And I just <laughs> agreed with her. And I said, you're absolutely right. Let's do something about it. And that motivated me really to start Kelimat Group, which was about 12 years ago. And since then, we found this big gap in the market. And so that's really the reason behind the success of the publishing house is because it filled this gap. There was, at the time, no publisher focusing on high-quality Arabic children's content. And now, of course, we have a great selection of publishers who are really producing wonderful work. And there's a whole industry in the Arab world around children's books, which is really great to see. I love when I heard you once say that children are too honest. You know, if they don't like your book, they'll just tell you to your face. And you can't sort of deceive them by giving them a half nice book if you want. Yeah, that's true. And I think they're honest in everything, you know, whether it's food, whether it's books, whether it's the way you look, <laughs> you know, you can <laughs> oh, never yeah. you can never get <laughs> fake compliments from your children. So that's for yeah. sure. You're such a role model for women in the Middle East. You've been the first vice president of the International Publishing Association that I think you said once that you were the second woman and that you were the first from the Middle East. And I, you know, I've lived in Dubai and uh, Sharjah and Abu Dhabi for maybe 22, 23 years of my life. And so the reality is women are highly empowered in the United Arab Emirates. You know, we have ministers that are women. We have participation in every way. Yet you continue to push for more and more of women equality, if you want women opportunities and so on. I've seen you very active in other parts of the region as well. Where do you think this is going? Where do we stand in the region? Are we satisfied with what we've achieved? 
Yes, I mean, I believe that you're absolutely right. In the UAE, I always felt I belonged in these meetings or in conferences or wherever I was because there were a lot of women around anyway doing the same sort of thing. And then when I moved into the International Publishers Association and I was attending the executive conferences, I noticed that there were no women there. I was the only woman. And for me, that was a very lonely place. Actually, I felt like I stood out, you know, like I didn't belong. And that's the reason why I set up Publish Her, which is a global platform for females in the publishing industry to network and empower each other and support each other in their journey. Um, And really through Publish Her, I've managed to bring together this community of female publishers to support their growth in the publishing industry. While there are many women men working in the publishing industry, very few of them get to the top. And I was really inspired to start Publish Her after I attended the Rome Book Fair. When I was in Rome, I uh, was invited to the opening of Rome Book Fair. And I went into this hall where there were a lot of people. And I looked around and I was the only woman in Italy, you can imagine. And there were 30, 40 men, and I was the only woman there. And this journalist came in, and she remarked, and she said, who's that lady? And they told her she's an Arab woman. And she said, an Arab woman managed to be the only woman in the room? And so, you know, it's these stereotypes that people have in their minds that Arab women are not empowered, and they are not ambitious, and they won't pursue a career. And so this was a real eye-opener for her to see an Arab woman be, and she said, where are the Italian women? And it really started me thinking about how women around the world need a lot of support and guidance, I suppose, to bring them to the top of publishing companies. And of course, the networking is very important. And that's really essentially why I set up Publisher. Mamadou, let me introduce you to my audience. So again, I can introduce you in so many ways because you are a seriously savvy businessman, but you're so easygoing. Every time we speak or every time you're on a stage, you're just so fun to talk to, honestly. And at the same time, you're well known for your efforts in empowering Africa. And I actually want to start from there. So Africa 2.0 is something that anyone who loves Africa loves. And the idea of you really standing for empowering Africa in that way is quite inspiring. Tell us a bit about how that started and why did it matter so much to you being a businessman and having the opportunity to just spend your time making money instead? Yes, uh, thank you very much, first for having me in this great program and uh, also allowing uh, Sheikh Abadur and myself to share this uh, conversation with somebody as great as you are. So we'll try and uh, match your background and uh, your eloquence. So basically... When it comes to Africa, it comes uh, from a need uh, as an African to uh, address first a global perception that has affected a self-perception across the continent, right? And it would start with my own childhood, I would say. When I arrived in France as a child, my parents were immigrants and I came a bit after, just uh, before high school. And I was pretty amazed and shocked by uh, the gap in development that uh, one could see between um, Paris and Europe in general and uh, where I was coming from uh, in Cameroon. And uh, I remember telling my mom, actually, she reminded me the day I decided to go back to Africa 
that uh, when I arrived, I was such in awe that I said that one day I'll go back to Africa and I'll make sure it looks just like Europe, if not better, and that our people have us all um, the same opportunity that I'm having. And growing up uh, as an adolescent, also um, in Europe, there was a very particular event in high school that um, triggered me. was uh, end of mid-high school. The principal called my parents and said, uh, we don't recommend your child to stay in this school. And my mother was a bit uh, anxious about it. She assumed the typical uh, perception that one could have around uh, people of color in Europe and started asking why I shouldn't stay and um, assumed uh, some form of uh, discrimination or something. And the principal had a very different response to what she was expecting and uh, recommended... um, your child is extremely bored, you should send him to the school in Paris. I arrived, I was the only African, uh, actually there were two of us, so there was one Moroccan and myself. And um, my point was very simple, is that what are the chances? How many people could get this opportunity to interact? And the kids were all targeting either the Fields Medal or the Nobel Prize one day kind of um, environment. So for me, it was very important to acknowledge the opportunities I've had and make sure that anybody on the continent at some point could have equal access to opportunities regardless of their wealth at birth or place of birth. And it has been a quest also to really remind uh, people as I went back, and as I actually went back working for the World Bank, And uh, I had a bit of a frustration in that environment in the sense that, yes, it was a diverse environment because it was a a multilateral, but I didn't feel that um, Africa had the real opportunity to kind of determine its own agenda. And on that journey, when it comes to Africa 2.0, I decided to gather young leaders from the continent and uh, to basically design a vision and an agenda for Africa that we would commit for for the next decades as a generation to ensure that the continent could effectively leapfrog. And on that journey, it's been very interesting and exciting. Of course, nobody believed it would happen because uh, gathering first young leaders and then senior leaders is already hard at a country level, let alone at a continental level. Where we believed, uh, we worked, uh, I think, from 60 different locations, and we didn't have Google Docs at the time, right? So and decided to put together a manifesto about where Africa should go. So we brought some of the most talented in the continent and the diaspora to design this vision for the continent and to bring back hope as to our capability to master our own destiny and to achieve great things together. And the manifesto, once once we put it together, everybody had a section, we're reviewing the respective sections, and we went to present it in Davos at the World Economic Forum and at the African Union. Three years later, after we presented it, the African Union, the heads of states, came together to present Agenda 2063 that was basically a five-decades vision for the continent. And suddenly Africa was becoming more attractive, and uh, I felt that this injustice in terms of perception internationally and in terms of self-belief across the continent was starting to shift towards uh, clearer skies and the potential of the people of this continent, wherever they were in the world, were starting to be acknowledged. And there was a clear path to self-determination and to growth. So that was really it, really, in the sense that unity for me has always been the key for, for achieve greater things. And my background itself 
over three generations, I think uh, my roots would go from along the west coast of the continent all the way to, to the, the deep forest. You know, I have a Muslim dad and my mom also was Christian. So it's always been about how do I put all this diversity into one, considering that this is who I am. And uh, as within, so without, right? So for me, it was important to first gather people and then give them hope. And more importantly, work together to execute that common vision that we had. And um, that's how it's come together now. There's still a long road to go, but uh, we're far from the hopeless continent that was published in The Economist uh, a bit more than a decade ago. Yeah, and we really, really, truly appreciate that effort. I think it definitely made a difference, and I think there is clarity around where to go. And when I think about it now, I put the two of you together. You're a power to reckon. So, Sheikh Abdur, you were nominated by Forbes as one of the top most powerful Arab women. Mamadou, you were nominated one of the top 10 influential men in Africa. And then you come together on this initiative, the Ubuntu Love Challenge. And to me, at the beginning, I was like, that's interesting. And what does love have to do with this? And then I spoke to you, Mamadou, and you explained it to me. And I had to share that with everyone because I think everyone needs to be part of this. But let me start with asking you, what is Ubuntu, Mamadou? What does that mean in Africa? In which language, actually, in Africa? So Ubuntu is a, an ancient and, and current African word that means I am because we are. I love that. And it reminds us of our shared humanity. Basically, the essence of what makes us human. So if you look at um, Southern Africa, Ubuntu means what I just mentioned, and it also means the people. In Rwanda, they say Umubuntu, which are the humans. In uh, Swahili, they say Utu, which are also humanity. And in Lingala and DRC, they would say Abatu, which are also the humans. So it's really that very essence of the very origin of what defines us as human that you find thousands and thousands of kilometers away from cultures and tribes that have nothing to do together, but that have that one common essence and root word, which is a reminder that people carry in their language, in their culture, to never forget along the way to keep their humanity in their heart and in their hand. That's how I would describe it. Which is so beautiful. And it's also a very important word that has been used in many ways and that has helped the continent be resilient regardless of all the challenges that the continent has faced, right? Whether it was slavery, colonialism, all the cataclysm, it was always a reminder when we're going through difficult things, people would say, we are in this together. I am because we are. Let's show some solidarity and we shall overcome. And it was also a message of hope to always remember that there is beauty in humanity and that's what will get us through whatever we're going through at the moment. Yeah, which is really so beautiful because I think really COVID-19 reminded us that we're in this together. And unless we are together, we cannot be stronger. We cannot go down that path. It's the responsibility of all of us to do it together. And Sheikh Abdul, so where did the love challenge come from. So why is love? I mean, you would expect that in those times you may want to talk about compassion or talk about action. You know, why the love challenge? So essentially, when Mamadou came to the UAE, I just want to let you know the context of how we started the Ubuntu Love Challenge. So uh, Mamadou was traveling to the UAE on a business trip and he got stranded here. 
I know. Like I got stranded in London. And you got stranded in London and he got stranded in the UAE. So he reached out to me and said, that, look, I'm stuck here in the UAE. Do you want to catch up? Of course, we know each other from the World Economic Forum. We're both young global leaders. We'd met in Davos. And sure, let's catch up. And so we had lunch together and we were talking really about what's happening with COVID-19 and how everything is shutting down. It was really at the beginning of the pandemic and how people are actually feeling very hopeless and very fearful. And it was this fear that was really kind of playing in our minds, you know, how the energy of fear is growing, you know, around the world. You see people reading the news and getting information and feeling very fearful and getting very anxious. And we were talking about how the energy of love is actually much bigger than the energy of fear. And that's what we really need to bring people together. And Ubuntu is really the philosophy of connecting people together, uh, reminding us of this shared humanity. And when you bring love into it, it just becomes a powerful combination that we thought this is what we need right now to get us through these difficult days that are ahead of us with people facing lockdown, facing job losses, un uncertain futures, and really not knowing what's coming in the next few days. And that's something we kind of discussed and thought, let's come up with this challenge where we ask people to show their acts of kindness and compassion. And we're calling it love over fear, because that's essentially what they're doing. They're choosing love over fear. And as soon as you see that, it becomes contagious. When you see somebody who's Uh, performing an act of compassion or an act of kindness, buying groceries for their neighbor, donating to a charity, doing something good for their community. You also want to be part of it. You want to get in on that action. So we thought, let's make it a challenge. So we asked people to share their acts of kindness and then challenge 12 other people to do the same until it becomes contagious. And In all honesty, we were actually quite surprised with the responses we got. We had people from around the world take the challenge. Everybody that we spoke to really loved the idea. They felt very connected to the word Ubuntu. They felt it was very timely and very important to do that. And really to step up and show that just one small act of kindness can make a big difference. And um, if I may... Yeah, of course. Maybe I think Sheikh Abdul really caught uh, on in this. And we could have called it faith over fear, for instance. But when you say faith over fear, it implies some kind of being passive and hope that it will sort itself out. But when you say love over fear, it's an act of love. It implies already an action of love in there. And what we really wanted to do, and that's why we could challenge, we're challenging people to love in a way that is universal, right? And I think. By doing that, if you take the case, let's say, I'm sure you've done that experience. You're in a room and you've seen it in the subway, for instance, and then you have somebody started laughing and then laughing louder and bursting out of laugh. Suddenly the whole cabin in the subway laughs too, or the room starts laughing. Correct. There is a contagious effect, emotions. There is a contagious effect in actions. Everything is frequency. And at the end of the day, in a time where the frequency prevailing was the one getting us back into a cocoon and stay there out of a fear of everything else. Then we needed the counter effect, right? And then that expands and that gets contagious in a way that touches so many other people. 
to retablish that balance and empower them back into the great beings that they are. It's just about reminding them that when you love, you express the quintessence of the divine creation. And that's an important thing. And to link it again to Namaste, when you say the divinity in me, so there's the divinity in you, it's honoring the people to say, actually, you can. And if I may add, we actually researched what other phrases around the world are similar to Ubuntu. And the one that really resonated with me the most was in Mayan culture, you know, they have this phrase and they used to say, in Lakech, which means I see you. And rites of passage, they used to give small like mirrors to the people uh, who were kind of transitioning from an age where they would kind of move into adulthood. And the mirror symbolizes of I see you and you see me. And so that's really what En Lakech means. And it's very similar to a concept of Ubuntu because Ubuntu is all about connecting humanity and we are all one. It's so beautiful. I love you both. I think this is incredible. <laughs> we love you too. <laughs> the way you present it is so, so interesting. I mean, I've been researching love seriously. Since I wrote Soul for Happy, as a matter of fact, my intention is that Hopefully my book six is going to be about love. The reason is I've not figured all of it out yet, to be quite honest. But I was quite intrigued by the word love challenge. And I have to say, I spent a couple of my morning meditations thinking about the idea of, has love really become a challenge? Do we really need to remind people of the importance of finding that not only the feeling, but the action that results from loving someone? May I take this one? Yeah, of course. Go ahead. I'm just excited to answer this one. And especially as a man, why I'm excited is that, look, you're not the first one to say that. And there are so many people that feel the same and even some of the most advanced masters in spirituality. And the reason is very simple, is that we have lived and grown in a society where love has been suppressed, where you say, boys don't cry where ultimately an act of love is an act of weakness. As a leader, you can't be weak. That's how we've been told. And guess what? We're reaching today a stage where society is in a deadlock, where this whole ego, pseudo-strength, at least projected, has no solution to a master global problem. Why? Because ultimately, everything is led by ego and love is suppressed. Then it's about... Ultimately, it led to wars, domination led by fear. And people are controlled if you can scare them. Yeah. And suddenly love is like, no, but it has been in a vocabulary, but extremely ring-fenced to relationship or to romantic context. And somehow for people to forget that the very essence of love is universal. Mother Earth is loving us. If not, we wouldn't be living here. And I think that's why also you see the rise of this feminine energy and women actually who have been the best, if you think of Jacinda Ardern or even Angela Merkel to a certain extent, the way the crisis has been dealt, it was dealt with kindness and compassion, which is what people are looking for. Why? Because as a kid and as a boy, and that's why I'm answering that, is when S hit the fan, you run to your mother, right? But mm-hmm. when you win, win the prize, you go to your dad. And suddenly the universe is reminding us that our vulnerability and what we're looking for is that nurturing energy of love. And suddenly it's weird because we haven't been educated, trained to accept and embrace it. And that's why also women are rising. And that's why I was very interesting to see Sheikha Badur when we discussed this, 
to just fill this need. And that's where authenticity is winning. And that's why value-based leadership is actually triumphing from this whole thing. Because if you are true to yourself and accept some of your weaknesses, but out of love, you make the right decisions versus making things look so okay because your ego could be damaged from failure. And that's the power of love. And it's universal. And we have to deal with that. We're challenging humanity to love yeah. because we know it's a challenge. I have to admit to you, Mamadou, I have not viewed love as the antidote of fear before until we started to talk about this. And Sheikh Abudu, you'd probably relate to that. I mean, in the community I grew up in the Middle East where we didn't have social security, we didn't have unemployment, we didn't have all of the sort of standard Western fear-removing engines, we felt so safe. We always felt safe that if I lost my job, my cousins and my best friends and my neighbors, because of the love between us, we will be okay. We will find a way to help each other. We will take an action based on that love that makes us all safe together. And I think that's really misunderstood in Western contexts where the individualization, the focus on the individual is making us believe that we have to go through it alone. Well, that's Ubuntu for you. That's going back to Ubuntu. Yeah. Yeah. I also believe that being in lockdown, being forced to stay home, really gave people an opportunity to really slow down. You know, we were running, we were traveling. I mean, I speak for myself. I was supposed to be in like five conferences during (laughs) the past couple of months. You know, I had to cancel all of them. And it gave us the opportunity to really slow down, to stop what we're doing and to look within. And when you start doing that, you start figuring out that you've been chasing after the wrong things. You've been running around doing things and really neglecting yourself, really you know, not focusing on what you value. And this lockdown gave us an opportunity to figure out what our values are, what's important for us. And love is number one, you know, connection is all number one, human connection with each other. These are the important things in life. This is what we should be doing. We shouldn't be running after more fame and more cash and more ego-driven things. These are all material objectives that really don't matter at the end of the day. What really matters is your family, your community, your friends, the human connections that you have around the world. That's what's important. And I've noticed those have become stronger. Yeah. Whether it's talking to people through Zoom or catching up with old friends, making time to cook dinner at home with your family and just sitting together, yeah. all of those things that we've missed doing, you know, are suddenly back and they're valued and they're looked at differently. So this is why we chose to really go with the challenge and to tell people that it's going to be okay. A small act of kindness goes a long way and Ubuntu reminds us of that. Yeah, I can say this better in any possible way. So I have one more question that is so dear to my heart. But before I ask that question, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is about spreading a message of happiness, of togetherness, and we have a billion people to reach. So I beg you, if you're here with us until now, then you love the conversation. 
before you sleep tonight, take the Ubuntu challenge. Search for Ubuntu Love Challenge. And I'm daring all tens of thousands of you to do it. And I'm daring you to challenge 12 people each so that we can spread this message. I think this is a message that's capable of changing our world. I'll go back and ask one question that is dearest to my heart. My last five years of work and research has been about igniting my feminine side. And I really think, as Mamadou said, that this is the way to change our world. That when the crisis hits, as you correctly said, Mamadou, handling it with love and compassion instead of assuming that it's the enemy and trying to crush it is a very, very different approach. What do you think is needed? What can we do? If I gave you a magic wand to change one thing, what can we do to empower the feminine to lead our world? Shall I take this uh, or Mamadou, do you want to go? I want one from each of you. Please go ahead, Sheikha, now. Okay. So actually, I was smiling when you were talking about igniting your feminine side, because as Mamadou said, this is what we need in the world. And we all have, as you mentioned, we all have masculine and feminine qualities in us, but we've been suppressing the feminine and we've been focusing more on those masculine qualities. And women feel like they have to embody all of these masculine traits so that they can succeed, you know, and that's something that I've discussed with many women. And it's very difficult difficult to change your stripes or your spots. You can't be someone you're not. If you embody feminine traits, just own them. Be who you are and people will respect you and love you for that. And unfortunately, we've had to, yeah, many women have had to follow masculine traits to succeed at work. But now, as Mamadou said, we're finding that the female qualities of compassion, of collaboration, of cooperation, of uh, intuition, of all these beautiful qualities that we have as women, they're coming to the forefront. They're getting their rightful place. And for years, we've been living in a very patriarchal system where the feminine has been suppressed. And now it's time for the divine feminine to rise and reach that balance that we need for the world to thrive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Every single person listening to this, we absolutely need to empower that part of us. Mamadou, by the way, before you answer, I encourage everyone to take a look at Mamadou's picture because Mamadou looks very masculine. So go ahead and tell us what's in your heart, Mamadou. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not too sure which picture you're referring to, but I'll trust you on that one. (laughs) Yes, your question is still puzzling me in the sense that the one who finds the answer has the keys to the new world, really. And I think it might just be a collective answer, the same way as the virus has been a collective problem. I believe that we'll get to a point where our egos will die of their own death due to an environment that makes it irrelevant. It will take us to our inner child and would remind us that we had a father and a mother. And at that point, if everyone can um, remember and of course, everybody's experience is different, that within each of us, we have been nurtured versus being patronized. If each of us can remember that we're living in an environment where there is Mother Earth, there's a reason why we say Mother Earth. We don't say Father Earth. And as the more we connect with that 
Mother Earth, the more we connect with the fact that we can't control everything, the more we, we admit and acknowledge that we can only survive through balance. So if there is one thing to do to get that divine feminine or to get that feminine energy to rise further, I think it's going to rise on its own. And it's going to rise on its own by the fact that we realize that as omnipotent as we have been brought to believe we are, we are not. And that's where, at that very point, the love of others will matter so much, the nurturing of others will matter so much, that it will mirror, in a way, the feminine in us. Yeah. And also, the other very important point, which is critical today, is to put more women in power position, but not in power in the sense of army general, but in the sense of authority. I think once we understand that there's a need for transition between power and authority, that's when the feminine would have its own place because Mother Earth has authority on us. And in that sense, the word authority in its own is dual. And somebody with authority doesn't need to coerce you to do something. By just their presence, you will do it because you will integrate and they kind of mirror this integrity in you of this polarity that makes you just want to align. Something in power will dominate and then your reaction will be to push the male side and the masculine side as from an ego point of view. And um, as we understand this transition in leadership that is necessary, then we'll find men with a strong feminine side. And there are already many of them. Exactly. But we'll also find much more women into it. Yeah, living their feminine side. So yes. women that show up like Sheikh Abudur with their ability to focus on topics that have love, compassion, empathy in them. That's exactly it. Because those are topics that everybody see themselves in. Then people will initially kind of react out of ego. And they would naturally kind of delve into it because it speaks to the one thing that we all have, which is our heart. And the way she responded to the calling and to the conversation about Ubuntu, about having to do something, she did it from the heart, not thinking, oh, what are people going to say? Or oh, what if it doesn't work? What about my image? No. And that's the leadership we're going to need. And we actually start needing it now. You know, what is so beautiful about what you say, Mamadou, is that when I ask the question, I ask the question from my masculine side, what is it that we can do if we have a magic wand? And when you answer it from your feminine side, that just by being who we are, we actually recognize the feminine in us and the feminine by definition would rise. Sometimes when I'm asked this question, I always say that, if I had a magic wand, the only thing I would do is to help people recognize that every person who ever changed the world to the better, whether man or woman, because man and woman is just biology, has actually been more feminine than masculine. If you think of Gandhi, more feminine than masculine. If you think of even Steve Jobs, his feminine side is what created the amazing creativity that he was. And it's, you know, it's really interesting for us to recognize that incredible positive power that the feminine in us brings. And I think if we can 
make that our being. I think that's when the world will change. That's it. I cannot thank you enough, both of you. It's such a wonderful conversation, so enlightening, and it's so from the heart. And I am so grateful for your time. I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing. It's been incredible to have you here with me today. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this and feel very honored and privileged to be on this uh, podcast with Mamadou. Thank you for having us. And thank you so much, Mo. And you know, the power of and the authenticity of your podcast is so incredible because it takes a certain level of courage, actually, that is beyond masculine to want to talk about those topics and to admit them. It's not trendy yet, at least. It defies the norm in terms of we can do this, let's make a change, etc. No, it's about actually let's talk about things that are much more important that our psyche wants to integrate. And I'm very grateful to you for your courage and authenticity. Thank you. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.